welcome to another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak, the podcast where we talk to people way smarter than us about the most important topics in Canadian business, economics, and policy. Nailed that intro, first episode of 2024. So still got it after two or three weeks off. Sarah? Still got it. It's good to be back. Good to be back. Did you have a good holiday? I uh, I did have a, I had a good holiday. Yeah, I went to two different uh, saunas over my holiday. So I count that as a, a win. That is a win. I yeah. only went to one sauna. Oh yeah. Which over, one did you go to? Over my, uh, there's a place downtown Toronto now called other ship. It's a, okay, other ship. Yeah. Okay, it's not only do you sauna, but you cold plunge and, uh, and, and they promise that that'll, you know, that, that the health benefits will improve your life in, in ways that I still don't understand, but it was yeah. fun. It's a lot of fun. I do admit. Where did you go? Uh, I went to two near Ottawa. So I went to the Nordique, Great which is place. just outside Ottawa. And then there's one further into Quebec called Amerispa, which is uh, less deluxe, I would say, than the Nordique, but still a fine a fine sauna. Nordique is is the best. I think that's so Americans don't understand, I think, the, the Canadian slash like, it's not Canadian sauna culture. We took it from other places, but like yeah. how good our saunas are. And Nordique being the best one. If anyone anyone listening who hasn't been, that's a top tier sauna. Yeah. But like experience. many other things, we're way behind the Nordics. <laughs> you know, cannot compare to the way they do it in the Nordics. Anyway, good to be back on the show. We do have a little bit of housekeeping to take care of before we get into the interview today. So if you've been listening for the past uh, month, we've been promoting a merch pack giveaway for three people who leave positive reviews of the podcast. Uh, and send them in to me. And uh, many of you did. And I have drawn uh, three names of people who left reviews to send merch packs to Jacob Carrier, Joshua Fawcett, Wiener, and Adam Hinks are our winners for the end of year merch pack giveaway. I'll be in touch with you via email to get your mailing address. But thank you for leaving uh, reviews on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Thank you to everyone who left reviews. It really does help us grow the show. And it's also just great to hear from you and get feedback so that we know that we're not just recording this into the void and people are actually interested. In That's true. And there's more where that merch came from, isn't there? So oh, there's tons more. Yeah. We're going to keep we're, rolling. We're going to continue doing more of these. Maybe we'll let it breathe <laughs> for a month, but I'm thinking doing these like every other month or Absolutely. so. Absolutely. Okay. Well, with the housekeeping out of the way, let's uh, get into our first interview of 2024. So I think it's appropriate to kick it off with the topic that uh, people are by far most interested in, in the past couple of years, which is uh, Canada's housing market and where we're at with the housing market. Um, I'm sure, you know, I don't know about you, Sarah, this is a topic at every family gathering I go to over the holidays, people talking about housing, mostly complaining about housing, asking what I'm going to do about housing, housing, uh, which I don't have a good answer <laughs> for. Uh, but did you experience a similar phenomena? No, no one's asking me about housing lately, thankfully. Uh, an, a question to which I don't have an answer, admittedly. But I do uh, think that it's the best time to have this conversation because we are at a huge turning point for the housing market. Um, I guess just with interest rate cuts potentially being on the horizon. So uh, I am just as curious as anyone to know whether that's going to make any meaningful difference. And then, you know, what this big supply issue is that we've been talking about for the mm. past, I mean, 12 months, probably longer, what the what the outlook is for that as well. Yeah, it does seem that things are starting to change on the supply front. Like we are seeing some provinces and cities passing more aggressive measures to uh, make it easier to build homes, uh, you know, get rid of some of the red tape that's uh, prevented homes from from being built. And yeah, as you say, interest rates are, you know, I think everyone seems to agree we're not going to see any more hikes, at least. Who knows how long they're going to stay high, but uh, things are changing and it's good to get an overview of the market headed into the new year. I will say that it's funny how much we talk about housing, given that none of us have any immediate plans for homeownership. <laughs> True. But you know, it does, it all trickles down, right? It to does. the renter market that we're in, we see the effects um, of our it's crazy housing we system. became like adults in the 2000s that like anything above like a 3% rate seems way, far too high. Oh yeah. No on rates. Yeah, for sure. For sure. 
anyway, to cover all that with us, we have a returning guest to Free Lunch, Daniel Foch, a uh, Free Lunch fan favorite. He is the co-host of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast and a real estate investor himself. Daniel, thanks so much for coming back on Free Lunch. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure. All right. So let's kick it off with uh, a really, really high level question. What do you think is the big story of the housing market heading into 2024? You know, we've been through the hiking cycle of interest rates, probably maybe we're on the downturn now. How is that impacting things? Just give us your high level take. I think it's it's interesting because everybody seems to have a crystal ball. So we can maybe look at what the range of outcomes is. But I think like the big story is like what happens in 2024. So like precedent would say that the last time we went through a housing cycle, and I think we talked about this last time I was on here in the 90s, it was it followed a very similar curve that we've been following today. So you saw a huge drop when the rate hiking cycle started, which we saw take place in uh, 2022 after the peak. And then it, and then, you know, prices kind of rallied a little bit in the following year, the first time rates let off a little bit on the fixed side. Uh, same thing happened in, um, in 1990. So 1989, 1990. And then in the 90s, what happened is we fell into a really bad recession. It was probably one of the worst recessions that Canada's ever been through. And um, house prices kind of grinded down for like four years after that. So the question is, is the economic setup comparable here to for that to take place? Or are we going to see um, what a lot of people are saying, you know, the more optimistic people are saying is as soon as rates come down, we're going to see a rebound in prices. And so I think the range is like you either have a huge drop in rates, which is probably a result of r- response to recession, or you have them kind of trying to do the soft landing thing. So let's say 25 basis points over the next three quarters. Um, that would be, you know, we're probably not, it's not going to stimulate housing too much. I don't know how a recessionary response rate cuts would be um, bullish either. But anyway, and then the, the final piece is inflation's actually sticky um, and they don't cut at all. And, uh, and we kind of just keep bleeding out the economy. And so I guess the big story is what happens with interest rates? Cause we've, we've learned that basically, Interest rates alone are, are kind of the the tool that people are um, following when it comes to the health of the real estate market. And what does that materialize into in 2024, 2025? Um, that, that seems to be kind of the, the main story this year. Well, why don't we look at a couple of those scenarios then? I mean, let's take the sort of soft landing scenario that seems to be what at least you know mainstream is now people are saying that's you know where we're where we're headed who knows mm-hmm. within a month that could change if that happens what do you see the impact being on on the canadian housing market because it, it, it's not a steep recession like the 90s so how does that differ i think that a, a soft landing scenario the challenge is like with canada is that our household indebtedness is so high like we didn't go we didn't sober up in in 08 like the us did right um, we just kept kept piling on debt. And so no matter what the rate is, people still need to deleverage before the economy can grow from my perspective. Like we're at 118% debt to disposable income, I think, hundred something like that. It's crazy, like yeah. a huge, ridiculous number. And so it's even if rates come down, it just makes the debt service on our already too much indebtedness cheaper, which means that eventually you should be able to pile on more debt, but it doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So um I think a a soft landing scenario would mean that you'll see less distress selling. Like you won't see as many people losing homes, which is you're starting to see. We've seen a, um, in the past two years, you've seen a 4X increase in distress selling through power of sales. Um, But I don't think it'll be, I don't think it'll, it'll cause the market to, to resurrect. Right. I mean, um, and the reason being when people talk about the market being as strong as it was in Q, two of 2022 or or the whole year of 2021 we're at a 0.25% overnight rate um we're never going i don't think we're ever going back if if we if we're going back there then we have far bigger problems to worry about economically yeah. than and so um i don't think 25 basis points is going to do much for the average borrower who's mm-hmm. renewing from a from a uh, two and a half rate into a four and a half rate right um and and renewals is really the, the wall that we're going to hit where you have the two 
uh, highest years of renewals we've ever had, 2025 and 2026, unless rates come down in those two years, meaningfully, um, all of those those mortgages reset at high, higher rates and high enough that um, it's just going to keep squeezing households. And that just keeps, from my perspective, it keeps putting pressure on the supply side to put, because people are starting to realize, oh, prices aren't going to go up. Equity is not going to bail me out. Rates aren't going to come down. I got to sell this thing. And the more people that make that decision, the more it kind of brings your supply up. It brings your price, could bring your prices down. I just think it's, that's kind of a slow scenario. I, I did want to talk about the, uh, I'm, I've been curious about this renewal wall issue. Yeah. And, uh, you know, where we're at in that process. Have we really gotten to the, the high point of people hitting renewals or wh- when does that arrive? And when do you think we, if that, is going to have an impact on price. We should start seeing the effects of that. Yeah. So, um, something like two thirds of all mortgages in, um, in Canada renew in 25, 26. So, and the distribution of them is kind of uncertain, but, um, it's a, it's a really high percentage between 50 and 60%. So, um, that wall is people like if you think about the vintages of these mortgages when the person first got into that mortgage um you've got you had a lot of people who were going into a five-year fixed because exiting their other mortgage um in 2021 or 2020 when rates were record low um and then or you just had a ton of acquisition like 2021 was a record acquisition year it'll probably be i would i'm willing to bet it'll be the lifetime record acquisition year until we die in canada 120 1000 sales on Toronto real estate board. Like this year we just finished, we just finished 2023 with like 65,000. So like almost half. Um, and so, so you have a ton of more new more new mortgages, people buying houses at elevated prices. You had a ton of people refinancing to get access to those cheaper rates in 2020 and 2021. Um, rates in 2020 and 2021, like you're fixed variable. So the variable curve has already seen it, right? So those people have already felt the pain. They've either hit their trigger rate, or they're feeling it on their variable. Um, the fixed hasn't felt it yet, and so when they come up, they're going to see increases in their in their interest payments by like sixty to ninety percent, which means interest in their mortgage payments by like thirty to forty percent. It's and so that's what that I hope that that describes it well enough. Like yeah. that's what the wall is, right? Yeah, I ran a bit of a like a rate hub mortgage cost calculation recently, um, and it turned out that the cost of paying a mortgage for the average priced home. In Canada, so about seven hundred thousand dollars is over double the cost now of the average rent. So we're talking about like two thousand versus like four thousand at today's interest rates. For and sure. so, in the context of kind of what you're talking about, people seeing these huge jumps, like that's really scary math. And I'm wondering how you think the market will be impacted by that change in like the value calculation from like rent renting to paying a mortgage. Um. To me, it all points to Canada just becoming a a renter's economy, and like that's something that I've felt was going to happen for a long time. Uh, I think policy is indicating that we're heading in that direction, uh, but I think um, so. You know, you're seeing the government wanting people to multiplex houses. You're seeing a huge decline in homeownership because the economics of it don't work, and the economics of rent do work, and so. Um, at scale landlords, legacy landlords that have a ton of equity built in or are reusing that equity to tap into new programs like the CMHC MLI Select Financing, as an example, which is functionally propping up the um, the, the multifamily housing market. And, and so that's when the government um, talked about issuing another $20 billion in um, CMBS financing, like um, Canada Mortgage-backed security financing. Um, that was all for purpose-built rental construction through MLI select mortgages. So you're getting legacy owners with equity and experience operating real estate assets, buying at scale real estate assets, putting them on 50 year amortizations. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that's a, that's a three generation asset from my perspective. Um, mm. and, and, um, and that's the only way that, that, that units make sense. Like you can't go, you don't have people lining up to lose money on a condo now, like you're describing, right? Like in order to cash flow a condo, you'd be you'd need to be like thirty uh, percent mortgage, right? Seventy percent down payment. So mm-hmm. nobody's doing that. That's why condo pre construction condo sales have fell off the cliff. But and and all of the new housing starts that we're seeing ramping up are coming from purpose built rental, and it's almost exclusively because of CMHC's MLI Select Mortgage Program. Okay, well, why don't we talk about that a little bit? Because I'm curious sure. how that 
program works. I'm not familiar with the the mechanics of it. Yeah. So it's, so MLI just stands for mortgage loan insurance. So for like listeners who are familiar with, um, CMHC's ability to get you, uh, uh, owner occupied financing for your home at 95% loan to value or high ratio. So they'll say anything over 80% needs to be insured by CMHC. And the way they insure it is they basically buy those loans off the banks and they sell them into mortgage backed securities. CMHC packages them and sells them in the more MBS market. Um, they do the same thing with because their mandate is to deliver housing and make housing affordable and accessible for, for Canadians. Uh, and you know, I would argue that that's a very difficult goal on the on the single family ownership side. They've 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 gone after the multifamily side, and so they will allow multifamily owners to go as into high ratio mortgage positions with extended amortization. So, um, where you can get a twenty five year amortization on a on a mortgage as a homeowner, a thirty year amortization on a mortgage as a homeowner, they'll allow multifamily building owners to go up to thirty, forty, fifty years. Mm. Um, if they're meeting certain criteria and they're and the criteria is based on like a point system. So it's just like a sliding scale. Um, it would be accessibility. So like wheelchair accessibility, other accessibility features. Um, it would be environmental. Um, so, and efficiency and so environmental efficiency. So, um, if you're like a net zero building, you'd get a hundred points and that would entitle you to the highest rate, highest, uh, leverage point and the highest, um, amortization. And then the final one is affordability. So if you're putting affordable units into the market, um, so like Calgary would be a good example. In Calgary, a lot of people are doing this using the affordability because Calgary's income is so high. And so a, a unit that is uh, priced at 30% of um, median income in Calgary is achievable. You could actually bring that to market and make a, make a, a business case for building those kinds of units. So those are the three categories. Basically, the majority of supply, I think, that we'll see over the next five years, unless um, uh, end-user absorption recovers meaningfully, is going to come from from this program. Is that mm. corporations that are taking advantage of this, or is it like individual investors as well? Mm. Yeah. A, a little bit of both. I'd say, um, so it's interesting, anecdotally, because um, I don't know if CMHC has sort of like come out and said this, but for smaller deals, they're actually... they they're almost like fast tracked because they really are trying to turn around transactions quickly. So the there are corporations using it and and they were kind of the first, like they were the early adopters because they're sophisticated. They know what's happening. Like a lot of times we'll call landlords who have never heard of this stuff and they own a legacy asset and it's, it's so the program only works for six units or sorry, five plus units. So minimum of five units. So it has to be a multifamily asset. Um, and then basically and and if you're an existing owner, you can actually there's there's other programs for environmental efficiency where if you inc- improve the your existing efficiency by forty percent, you can also qualify for the same thing. So, but you're seeing a, a variety. I would say probably the majority of um, people applying are, are corporations, but um, you're starting to see more and more adoption in the small scale stuff because CMHC realizes that they can very easily take those on, and and it's low risk for them because they're small project risk. The projects aren't massively outsized by comparison to the individual's personal net worth. Um, and so it makes sense for them to try and execute as many of those smaller ones as they can. And so we're starting to see more and more adoption for like people like us, you know, groups of, of uh, investors like Nick and I have a, a course that we run and the majority of investors want to use CMHC MLI select financing to build a sixplex or buy a sixplex and make it more energy efficient or whatever. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is so interesting to me in terms of like the dynamics of like who owns what and like how things I guess are shifting in the country. Do you have like a breakdown of like how many homes are owned by like, I don't know, large scale developers? How many are owned by like kind of, you know, like mom and pop investors? Like how many are owned by like single families? Like what's the, the breakdown in the Canadian market? And like, where are we going to see more shifts as far as like how many more homes are realistically going to be built built by um, yeah. I, I guess by, by corporations, like I'm wondering where those shifts are happening and who actually owns real estate. Yeah. So right now it's majority, um, one individual ownership. Um, but the problem with Canada and is we don't have a beneficial ownership registry and the government is currently trying to make one with this, um, uh, unregistered or sorry, um, vacant homes tax is basically their way to try and get people to register. Um, but the fines I think are too low. Like I think that you get fined like five grand, if you don't register and 10 grand, if you 10 grand, if you're a corporation, if you don't register. And so 
that for a lot of people who use Canadian real estate for nefarious purposes, it's just a privacy tax to them, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, for the people who they really need to get in this beneficial ownership registry, um, they're they're not succeeding, and and that's been very evident in the fact that they've had to um, increase in, or um, push the uh, the date <laughs> twice. So they've they've changed the the registration date for for the un- underutilized housing tax twice. Now it's been extended to uh, end of April for next year. Um, but, but so I can't really answer the question. Like the best data that we have is, um, Terranet who runs like, um, Ontario's land registry system. Um, they put out a report showing like multi-property ownership and increases in multi-property ownership, but it ends up being like 20, 30% of total supply. And it, and that, and that also accounts for like, um, if you you own a house and a cottage, you're now a multi-property owner, right? So, and then also it wouldn't account for if I own my house and then I owned uh, rental properties in three separate corporations, which is what I do. It wouldn't, because mm. it's just saying, okay, this corp owns two properties, this corp owns one, you know what I mean? And so we just don't, we're very far behind when it comes to this. And this is where I think policy is very funny, right? Because policymakers are throwing um, policy had a problem that they don't even know what the problem is, mm. right? Because we like we think that there's a lot of foreign investment. We think that there's a lot of money laundering. We think that there's all of these things, but we don't even know who owns, like who who's the beneficial owner of the corporations that own the real estate in this country. That does seem like sort of basic information that you would right. have you would, if you were going <laughs> to think, right? <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, this is uh, an aside, but when you're doing research for investments and like you need data to support decisions that you're making with your yeah. money, what sources of data do you trust when it comes to housing? Cause like when I research stuff for stories uh, and for podcasts, I find it's such a wide variety and people have completely different numbers for, for different things. So I'm curious what you use. Yeah, it's um, it's a great question. I try and use everything because I find that like, just like you, there's, there's such a wide variety. And then I just say, okay, what of these like actually makes the most sense? And I guess to be honest with you, some of it is like, what of these supports my narrative? Like, I'm not sure if you've ever read the book, like <laughs> how to lie with statistics. Right. But I mean, a lot of, a lot of that is like, there are, there a data point can in this country, especially be interpreted in like two completely different ways. Right. So housing starts as an interesting one in Canada. Like right now we're looking at what would be the record uh, one year rolling average, but housing starts in the past couple of months are like falling off of a cliff. So you could say, Oh, housing starts mm-hmm. are up or down or whatever. Um, so I, I don't like, I do a lot of primary research, um, but I, I'll, I'll kind of start with like StatCan and then we'll start going into other stuff, like put out some freedom of information requests to try and get stuff from like municipalities, like, uh, you know, trying to get like condo docs from municipalities to see how many condo registrations there are, or, like actually scraping municipal websites to see how many applications. We, th- there's a lot of like um, gr- great uh, paid services like Altus Group tracks pre-construction really well. Mm. Um, Urbanation tracks it really well. Uh, Zonda Urban, which was used to be Urban Analytics, um, tracks it really well. So those those three companies, but they're like ten grand a year or something like that for those services. Mm. Um, CoStar we use a lot, um, but th- like if you were to take that tech stack and use it for your own purposes, that's that's forty k a year in data, right. right? So I don't even do that, and I'm like you know, and, th- and this is what I do every day, so. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think I, it's very tough to be honest. Primary research is pretty much the only way. And that's why those guys can charge 10 grand a year because nobody else has the data. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Well, uh, speaking of urban nation data uh, and going back to rents, <laughs> I guess I was looking at their rental report that they put together for rentals.ca, I guess it is Yeah. Um, for December. And I was kind of surprised because I have this story in my head that rents are just like going up and up and up. But there seem to show that, you know, in the GTA, the city of Toronto, Vancouver, month over month, at least, rents are down. They had rents down 2% year over year in Toronto. Um, so I'm curious, what is driving that? Um, I think it's like tough to use. So what, what month is that year over year for December? December, yeah. yeah. Is it a seasonal thing? I, it's December such a tough month to use on a year over year basis. Um like we definitely have seen rents, I think tap out like, and, and, but a lot of that growth, like most of the growth in rents happens, especially this year, it took place in August and September, maybe even mm-hmm. July, August and September. And a lot of it is like, this is, this is actually a great follow up to the 
the question that you just asked me about, like understanding where the data, where to, how to get the correct answer from the data. So if you look at um, population growth in Canada and you look at where it came from in the last um, 12 months or even in the last quarter, right? Because we just saw that record quarter, 430,000 people in Q3, um, tons of student um, permits being issued in, in Canada. And so we saw a huge surge in rents in the summer and into September of, of uh, last year, 2023. And then it basically flatlined. If anything, it came down. But it was like, it looked like it was like apocalyptic rental scenario in, in August, September. Um, and it was because you have so many young people trying to get accommodations for their school year. And then it, again, it, it taps out. And so mm. um, I don't like, it's so hard to say because there's so much seasonality to, to rents and to house prices and all of these different things on a year over year basis, what month you're using matters. Like it really does. Um, you know, in December, J December and January are tough months to use. Like I would, I don't even know if I would ever use a December, January, year over year comparison be just, you know, I would almost be using quarter over quarter for something like rents as well. Cause, um, it's just like, doesn't feel like it feels like there's just way too much, a, a, a potential for volatility to take place. I would say rents are probably still up, but they could, could very well be up cause or down on a year over year basis heading into December. Cause December was like, they kind of just crashed heading into, um, yeah. More broadly, I want to pick up on your point about population growth and specifically around the uh, the, the start of the school year. Um, I saw a, a LinkedIn post just this last week that was kind of like a breakdown uh, in London, Ontario, and the impact particularly on like, uh, I guess, like international student enrollment, um, August 2022. Um, this guy, Earl uh, Blaney, crunched the numbers that enrollment was up for international students by 26%. And then five months later, um, rent in London, Ontario had surged 36 uh, percent, which was the highest increase, I guess, seen wow. in uh, Canada. I I'm wondering what you make of, of those numbers and if maybe not those numbers specifically, like how you can analyze international kind of student data enrollment and student student enrollment kind of more broadly and like what the impact of those numbers are on big rental markets in Canada. Yeah. I mean, when I look, when I think about this, the student side of things, it's like, that's literally just a steroid being injected into rents, right? Like these are people who, anybody who's a non-permanent resident, like who's not getting PR and PR, if you look at the, the population growth, um, like Bank of Canada kind of put a, a stacked bar chart, but like Ben Rabideau puts out a really good chart on this stuff where it's like, um, it just shows um, actual permanent residents and then it shows um, non-permanent residents. And we have to remember non-permanent residents is they're, they're banned from buying houses in Canada. So a lot of people think this is bullish for Canadian real estate because population is growing so much. It's like, well, PR permanent residents aren't actually growing and they ha it hasn't really grown for the past couple of years. It's kind of flatlined or pa past couple of quarters. It's, it's kind of flatlined at like 500,000 a year. Um, all of the growth is coming from uh, temporary foreign workers, student permits, et cetera, et cetera. So all, these are all um, non-permanent resident streams. These are people who statistically, I mean, they're non-permanent, right? So why would they buy a house? They're going to rent, right? Even if they're like, they don't, they're, they're in a transitory phase of their life. So they're a student, they're going to go rent for a couple of years until they find where they want to put their roots down or whatever. And so when I look at it, almost all of the um, growth that we're seeing in the real estate market from a price perspective is happening in rent price, which should eventually translate to a growth in price in housing prices through income. Like the income approach to evaluating a property tells you, you know, you use a cap rate, net operating income divided by the purchase price of the property. If the cap rate doesn't change, but the income goes up 36%, like you're saying, then the value of that property should eventually go up. Um, it just takes a while for that to take place. So this could kind of floor the market a little bit. Um, but it wouldn't surprise me if, if like the correlation literally was what you're describing, like a 36% increase or to, like if, if it, even if it was one to one, if it's like 10% increase in demand, 10% increase in prices for sure. I mean, the other piece is like, these are people who are super irrational consumers. Like, and, and I'm not even trying to say that like from like a judgmental perspective, like economics assumes that consumers are rational. You have people who aren't familiar with the local economy, the local norms, et cetera. This is how they get taken advantage of in the workplace as well, right? Like this is how their big box stores, when when the um, immigration discussion was happening about 
you know, keeping labor costs down. Like this is how they, they work for less. They pay more on rent. They don't know what, what, uh, what's, what's fair rent in a certain market. They're often in more desperate situations because they don't have a friend who they could go stay with if they don't end up securing a place for an extra month or whatever. And so mm. it's the same thing that happened in when, when we had a lot of foreign money in the Canadian, um, real estate market speculating in 2016, 2017, before those bans started, when you take somebody who has no familiarity with, with how that local economy works there, it's a lot harder for them to consume rationally. And so things can get off the rails almost instantly. Right. This mm. just seems like such a big problem to solve. If we are in fact moving towards a more of a rental economy, as you mentioned earlier in the conversation, which is still something that like I'm mulling over and, and, and thinking about. So I, I'm wondering from like a housing perspective, when it comes to um, enrollment at schools and the impact that those students have on housing markets, like are you encouraged from a housing perspective uh, by the comments slash commitments that immigration minister Mark Miller has made in recent months to kind of get schools to be more accountable about providing housing solutions for students? Um, I, I'm not really like, but, um, I, I just, because I know that like there's, I know the supply chain of housing and I know that when the public sector is involved in that supply chain, it's usually doubled in length. And so even if it was like a very skilled private sector executor trying to build a project that is meaningful enough to house a, a a meaningful amount of students, like it's going to solve a problem quickly. That's going to take three years at the absolute best. Like the most skilled developer builder I could find in the city of Toronto could turn that around in three years. The average builder is going to turn that around in five, six years. The public sector is going to turn that around in 15 to 20 years. So and I'm, it's not even like an insult to them. It's just like the, they move a lot slower, um, right? There's It's a much bigger machine. To, to once you get the locomotive rolling, it goes, but it's a lot of power on on the engine at the beginning. And so um, I think that they're doing a lot of favors to the, the whatever government succeeds them by getting a lot of these policies in motion. And it's going to look mm -hmm. really good on the neck. Who, you know, I mean, if the conservatives win the election in 2025, they're going to look like heroes because housing uh, affordability will just start returning that. Mm. Uh, when it comes to the private sector, meeting the demand for rentals uh, are you seeing movement in that space like are we getting private builders doing more purpose-built rentals and supply increasing on that side what's happening there yeah so i would call that more of a public private partnership because of that cmhc financing that i was talking about like it just okay. it would never work without credit that like credit this is like the best credit terms in the world for the construction of of rental housing. Right. Um, and developers are gobbling it up. Like actually like there, if the numbers work, why wouldn't you like that? You know, it, the problem is you have to hold the asset for 50 years and you basically have to be okay with not seeing your balance on your mortgage go down. And, and, but you're paying the best interest rate in the market. Like it's typically, um, I think their website says like more the CMBS rate plus 50 bips. So that's bet Like that's a hundred bips better than a, anything you're going to get. 200 bits better and you're going to get on construction financing. Hmm. Um, they are going to give you a 50 year AM. They'll give you 95% loan to, to cost. Typically this is all available on their website, by the way, I'm not saying anything that's behind the curtain. You can just go Google CMHC MLI select. Um, and then on takeout, like once you've built the project, usually people are actually taking equity out on top of it. So they end up getting like a hundred, 110, 120%. Cause by the time the project's finished, it's worth more. The rents are higher. And so based on the income and the, the, the appraisal, they actually take more, take some cash out of the deal. Um, they hold the, uh, um, outsized amount of debt on that prop property, but again, they don't care because it cash flows over that 50 year period. Like your mortgage payments are so small that it'll cash flow. And then, um, they go do another project. And I think CMHC wants to encourage developers to take that equity out and go do another project. Um, and so, so functionally, like you've taken what it, earlier, you know, to the past t t 10, 20 years were the way we socialized the cost of creating affordable housing was you had irrational consumers, maybe foreign investors, maybe money launderers, maybe just people who thought housing prices were going to go up. And so they bought units, they bought condos, they bought detached houses, and they rented them out at a loss. And that trade made sense, right? Um, now that's gone because you can't, the, if prices aren't going up, you can't keep losing money um, on just to provide rentals for some, you mm. know, wh whoever. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way that we're socializing it now is the developers taking all of the risk and spreading that risk out by 50 years. And CMHC is ensuring that risk and CMHC is also taking that risk. And so taxpayers are functionally taking the risk. And I don't have a problem with this. I'm not saying it like from a critical perspective because it's what's necessary. But it's like, it's almost like a redone version of... Um, a lot of the housing policy that we saw in like 60s, 70s, 80s, other than there's no tax reforms, although I think we might start seeing them, but like um, it was highly tax deductible during that phase, the MERB phase, multi-unit residential building phase of, um, actually there's a great book on this. It's called, um, I think it's called Still Renovating. Um, It's a history of Canadian housing, um, affordable or social housing policy. But anyway, Mm. um, that, so that's kind of like, I think mechanically how this is, is delivering housing. I, 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 went on a tangent there so i don't even remember the original question but i hope i answered it yeah no i, th- I think you did the question was really just like is it getting built yeah. like even it you is, know yeah. if yeah. you take if you you know with that public support is it is it getting built i guess my follow-up to that would be do these projects only make sense with the level of immigration uh, even temporary migration i suppose that we're seen now like if because you know you already kind of see this in the discourse right people saying oh well these schools you know we have pacific college that's bringing you know all these temp- these students in and like yeah. are they a real college i could see it flipping to where there's a lot fewer permits there's a lot less mm-hmm. uh you know student international students coming in if that happens do these projects fall apart how does that you know what's the risk there i, I would say that um the same way that like from a supply perspective, a unit is a unit, like whether it's a mansion that eventually that person, the person who moved into that frees up another home that frees up another home, you know, trickles down. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say the same thing for people moving here. It's like somebody is going to come here, they have to consume a unit of housing. And so um, I think the biggest threat, so, okay, so I'll I'll first start by saying, um, I don't think that you, I don't think that you could take away the demand or the, the, the appeal of Canada, um, to a lot of people, like, I think it takes decades for that to be destroyed. And like, I'm probably the most cynical person when it comes to this stuff. So, um, and I, I've always felt that like we would gradually erode the compellingness of Canada as a destination for people to migrate to. Um, but I think it just takes way longer than like, than what this whole housing problem will take to solve. Um, and so I don't see demand for people to, to, to move to Canada decreasing anytime soon. You're starting to see like, you know, there's a, there's data that Indian, um, student applications, um, have, have declined by like 30 to 40%. There's data that, you know, different, they're, they're starting to see the biggest emigration of Canadians, um, ever in history, but it's like 35,000 people. Right. So it's like, mm-hmm. um, you're, you know, you're starting to see more and more stories of people leaving Canada or immigrants leaving cause they're feeling disappointed and depressed. There's like a quote from a globe article where it's like gradually, um, the optimism um, of somebody who immigrates to Canada, um, declines so that it's the same as everyone else in Canada. Right. Like, I'm like, wow, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, um, at, so I don't, I don't necessarily think that, um, I think that you're already seeing the headwinds and I think that Canada is really going through a dark phase right now. Like we are, this is like our dark ages and I think we'll, we will emerge much better. I really feel that way. And the rebuilding phase is, is kind of like what excites me. Um, but I think like our, our structural deficit of units in, in Canada is like 250,000, maybe that's, that's Ontario, sorry, 250,000 per year. Right. So every year that this problem perpetuates, um, you ha- you're behind by 250,000 units. So right. three years goes by or t- three years just went by at uh, immigration levels this high or population growth levels this high. And um, we didn't, we had that deficit. So you're, you're short like on 1.5 million houses. You're going to be short 4 million houses in the next five years. And so, I mean, it's just like, no matter what that demand is, the big threat from my perspective is, what we're seeing right now happen in Canada is GDP per capita is is in decline pretty majorly, like real GDP per capita. And so what that means is quality of life is declining on average for Canadians. And you can't really measure quality of life in, um, in an average term um, because like there's a massive disparity and that disparity tends to be increasing. Um, so what happens is the people, I think where people, our generation and people who move to Canada are really going to feel that decline in quality of life is in housing units. You're going to start seeing 
shrinking of unit sizes, which you're already seeing in condos, but I think you're going to start seeing a lot of these larger units actually start getting cut up, which is what policy is being designed to do. You're starting to see the government encouraging municipalities to upzone subdivisions to four units, right? Toronto just did it. Upzone to four units. You can go take a, you could go buy the house next to Drake and put four units in it, right? Like legally, you could do that <laughs> if you wanted. Um, and so, you know, you could, you could turn Forest Hill into Fourplex Hill if you wanted. And so a, as these things start to, to take place, I think that that's where that erosion of um, quality of life and, and quality of life is almost like too, um, I don't know, like uh, qualitative of a term to use, but uh, the, you, I think like housing is what's really going to, f- where we're really going to feel that as individuals in Canada. Every, we have the, th- we have the third largest household size in the world. And I would say that like, uh, sorry, not household size, square footage per capita in the world. That mm. is going to be dec- in decline probably for the next, for the rest of our lives. And we have one of the lowest household sizes. So number of people per house in the world. And so that is going to start increasing and it already started increasing in the U.S., and, and so that, that to me is like my two decade prediction on how that whole thing materializes. That's the threat to people building rental housing is like, do we start seeing households consolidate and that actually declines your demand? I still don't think it's enough of a risk, but anyway. It's so hmm. interesting that you say that. Cause yeah, like to us, what is like an erosion of quality of life is just like how most of the other world lives. Like most people sure. don't live in like a standalone single family yeah. home, even if you go to, to Europe. But um, I, it's interesting too, because it seems like, I, I mean, I hear about this, like if you go up to like Markham or like Richmond Hill, kind of just like these areas outside of Toronto, like that trend already seems to be almost just happening like within single family homes that are meant to be standalones. You'll have like a couple families like living mm-hmm. in a home and people are almost like the, like the economics of it seem to be pointing only in that direction. For sure. Yeah, I totally agree. Are, are you seeing uh, an impact of some of these zoning changes, like especially, you know, in BC, uh, where I think, I don't know, it seems to me like they've been the most aggressive. Maybe you have a different yeah. uh, view on that. But is that having an impact on, on stuff? like how are developers and investors thinking about those changes? Yeah, I mean, you're starting to see like as they make it easier, as they start, the, the biggest challenge with um, with real estate is is the the red tape right and so if you start eliminating that um you can actually start building housing so um vancouver put in that multiplex um zoning in uh october i believe and by the end of november they had um 19 applications already for multiplexes and so it these things happen right it's just like now that's the, the that application is likely um three, four, six, and because they're brand new policies, like they don't know how to process them. So maybe a year before each one of them gets approved and then you've got a year or two to build it. And so again, this is why supply is so long run, but, and, and why we're probably, these policies would have been far better five years ago, obviously, but, um, yeah. and there's, they are solving the problem for the next government, I feel like, but, um, I think you are definitely seeing it. And like as somebody who, I mean, on the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast, we have probably the most captive audience of real estate investors in the country. All we're hearing about from people is, I want to buy a McMansion and cut it up into four units. I want to buy a piece of info land and build a sixplex on it using MLI select financing. I mean, you have the perfect storm for people who want to do this stuff. Um, As long as they're doing it smart, like there's... Th- this is probably the renaissance period for for small cap developers in Canada. And and yeah, the multiplex zoning is what's leading the charge. Fi- we get in the financing side of things and, and if people can do five, six units, um, up to 10 units, I think is what they're going to start allowing in um, in certain municipalities on avenues. So like on major arterial roads, any main road. Mm. Um, if you start seeing 10 units that are accessible projects for like anyone on this call and anyone listening to the call to just go and build, um, because the financing is easy to get and like it's systematized. I mean, now you've got a, you, you've really, really got a, a real solution brewing. Um, and, and I don't think we'll have a housing crisis in 10 to 15 years. <laughs> Interesting. Do the, do these fourplexes make financial sense right now? Like, you know, if you can go into Forest Hill, yeah. for example, it's, is, if you're not from Toronto, it's a, you know, wealthy-ish neighborhood in Toronto. You go in there, you buy an expensive house, turn into a fourplex, with building costs being what they are, with labor costs being what they are, do those do those make sense? That that might not, because you'd be paying a big premium on your square footage. But like, if you were to buy like a a, a big house, like a you know a, 
a house that can be cut up into two, three, four units. If you can keep like, and, and, you know, it's already framed and drywalled and everything. So really all you're doing is maybe adding in a, a firewall between the two units and figuring out how to creatively structure the units within the house and putting in a kitchen. So you're maybe 50 to 80 grand for a kitchen and putting in a bathroom. So you're 20, 30 grand for a bathroom, um, maybe an extra parking spot. And so maybe your all in cost is, you know, within the existing square footage is a hundred bucks a square foot rather than building from scratch here four five six hundred dollars a square foot which it just doesn't like the economics of building from scratch unless you're doing five units because you're using mli select financing and and even then it's not like the economics don't actually make sense they just make sense because you are spreading out the cost over 50 years you can mm. like you can cash flow anything over a 50-year period um so it, it, with cutting up existing supply yes the numbers make sense for less than five units um very much so. You just have to be smart. You have to know how to renovate. You have to know, you have to buy well, for and and that would work in Toronto, um, for five plus units, um, and or for for brand new builds, it's only working with MLI Select, really. Okay, interesting. So a nod to the people that are still dreaming of like investing mm-hmm. in a home. I'm wondering, like, in what scenario do the economics of like buying a single family home still make sense, or do they make sense? right now or are we moving towards a model where it's like better to just team up with your family or your buddies and like buy a place and re-renovate mm-hmm. it and everyone live in it like what what did what does this look like for the average person i mean to me like to buy a home if you really want to buy a house like if it's something that is like fundamentally part of like your life goals or is going to give you like fulfillment as a person or you feel is a necessary of the canadian dream or like you need that much control like it's a qualitative question because like the, from a quantitative perspective, it, it, the numbers are very clear. You have to really suck at investing to, to make it make sense to not rent. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like if you run the numbers yeah. and say, okay, I'm going to rent and I'm going to take the opportunity cost. So the down payment plus all of the interest that I would pay, like I have a mortgage on a million dollar house, like, you know, 650 K let's say. And I just know this because I saw the mortgage statement recently, like $250,000 in interest over the first mortgage term. Right. Like, so you put all that away, dollar cost average added to S and P, right? Like, let's just say, even just like you put it into, even if you're bad, like you put it, you're only making five, 6% a year. I think it's like the last time I ran the numbers, you have to be able to make like your investment returns would have to be like sub 4% to not beat real estate investment, even with capital appreciation that you were seeing on, on like, mm-hmm. you know, like, so, and that was, I think an average of 6.11% um, capital appreciation on a house since, um, the last housing market cycle bottom, which was like uh, 94, 95. So 6.11, even if you put 7%. Um, so anyway, most people, but this is the thing for Canadians. Most people are bad investors. And so it does make sense. Right. And I, and I say that with respect, but like most people in Canada, like the, our household um, savings rates and our debt to disposable income say it all. We suck at saving money and we suck at investing money. And so what does a mortgage do? It forces you to save money and it forces you to invest that money into a asset and, gradually every time you bought every time you pay your mortgage your dollar cost averaging into your house and so that it makes people do that and that's i think why canadians love buying their houses honestly are you seeing a shift from people i guess like cooling off to the idea of investing in real estate and like trying to get up to speed on other ways to invest money i'm just wondering in the perspective of like it's just it's such a psychological shift to think that like this isn't the number one like wealth building tool I'm, I'm wondering you you have a direct line into real estate investors like is interest dropping off um not really i think that um i think speculation has really dropped off like i would say okay so yes to, to answer your question like what most people call real estate investing um has, has very much dropped off because i think everybody you know in 2020 or 2019 everyone knew somebody who bought a pre-con and made a million bucks and you know what I mean? And now everybody knows someone who bought a pre-con and set it on fire and lost a million bucks and whatever. Right. <laughs> and so, and, and so as you get to the point where everyone knows a loser rather than a winner in the asset class, now people are right. very afraid of it, but, th- but there's a distinct mm. difference where like Canadian real estate has very much been buy low, sell high. It's just pure speculation for the past 20 years. Cause it was always just going up and it was, if it, w- it was going up in 20 or sorry, on a two year, five-year, like over one course of a mortgage term, people could climb the housing ladder. And we're assuming that that's stopped now because we're kind of seeing it, um, a 
a shift in like we're in a new paradigm from a mortgage rate perspective. Um, but if if that kind of picks up back up again, like if 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 house prices start growing on an annualized basis in a year, two years, whatever, it, like we'll probably just end up getting back uh, back onto it. But speculators are basically gone. Like there's nobody really um, interested, and data would tell you that uh, investors have dropped off substantially. Um, I think that qualitatively, like there's still a lot of interest in investing, but the numbers are just so hard to make sense of at current rates uh, with current prices that like most people kind of, they get into it. Like they'll come into our course. We'll be like, here's check all of these boxes and you've got a good real estate investment. And they're like, I can only find that in like St. John, New Brunswick. And it's like, yeah, that's the point. Like that's welcome to real Mm -hmm. estate investing. Like just seems like the value is being captured right now by like the developers and then the banks for sure. when it comes to the real estate market. I would completely agree. Like I think that that, and that's what to me, like a transition to a, a renter's economy looks like that. You look at Germany, like Switzerland, like I, I'm, um, I'm a Swiss citizen. I spent some time there and um, all, all of my friends in Switzerland that I went in the army with were r- renters and they were all far wealthier than my Canadian friends. They were all bankers and, you know, and they, they invested in others, like in, in things that they were passionate about businesses, whatever. And, and so, mm. Um, I think it's a good thing for Canada, to be honest with you, like to progress. And it, it, the problem is you're going to start seeing this huge disparity of all that you get this like oligopolistic class in the development space and they all have access to this credit that nobody else has access to. And th- that the people who really understand that and see real estate as like an inflation hedge and a long-term like hard asset and are buying it for that reason, because they see this, this disparity and like this K-shaped recovery taking place in a post COVID world where the economy is basically going to be divided into people who either hold assets or don't, um, because anybody like if we end up in a long-term inflation regime like even if it's only three between three and four percent um if you own a, a house let's say because a house has wood and construction labor and all of these different things in it that are inflationary um if you own that and inflation is going up then you're in a good position and if you if you don't own it then your buying power is being eroded away and you're paying rent or whatever it is right rent control is really the only thing that saves uh renters in that in that regard and so i think that um it's it's a really fascinating like when you look at it that way the challenge mm-hmm. is is um the numbers just don't work in most most canadian cities like for a like so for a single family house and i actually think it should probably stay that way like i think you want to get to the point where um only it, you can only invest in multiplexes that's where a point where like you, as an investor you can only buy a multiplex and that's in order for that to take place um investors become housing creators, not housing destroyers, right? They're not taking a, a unit away that somebody else could have bought to rent it out or whatever. I think uh, that's a brave take in this country. It's a, a, a country that's really accustomed to homeownership. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, let me wrap up, I guess, on a forward-looking note. Uh, are you how, how do you feel going into... 2024 as an investor are you are you bullish on the market are you bear like where do you think we'll be a year from now um i'm just like pretty careful right now i'm just really like you you have the luxury of time like sellers are the ones who who have urgency right now not buyers and so you can shop around you can look for good deals you can negotiate like i think i'm just really sharpening my my tool set you know and we're teaching a lot of investors how to do this stuff right now and like um negotiate deals get financing conditions get um, inspection conditions, you know, look for vendor take back mortgages, look for distress. Like there's, you're finally in a buyer's market. And so I'm just treating it like that. I'm not in a hurry to buy anything. Like I, I'm, I liquidated a little bit from a portfolio recently and, and I'm just like waiting for the right stuff, looking at some deals in Costa Rica, looking at some deals in the U S looking at some deals in Canada. And so I think there's a lot of opportunity right now. And as, like, as we're starting to see the average, person and the or the people who took on too much debt got too excited and you know and felt like they were rocket scientists during the bull run and just levered up and they're starting to deleverage a little bit you'll i think you'll start to see some good deals and so that's i'm just keeping my eyes open for the good opportunities really i want to hear more about investing in costa rica next time you're on the pod with us but <laughs> we'll good. leave it there for now okay. uh Dan, where can people find you um, online? Yeah, just Google me. Daniel Foch, F-O-C-H. Um, is, uh, I think Google will give you the the place that you're most likely to want to interact with me. So um, That'll give you the yeah. course I'm, and I'm, the podcast and everything? Yeah. Well, the course is realist.ca, like uh, like realism, like philosophical realism, like realist. Um, and uh, podcast is the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. So if you're already in your podcast platform, just search that one up and uh, we'd love to have you. Okay, great. Thanks for coming on free lunch. Thank you guys. 
All right, Sarah. Well, another uh, great conversation with Daniel. I always really enjoy having him on the pod, not just for his like very deep expertise on real estate, but also uh, how he extrapolates it to how it touches on so many other aspects of the Canadian economy and society. I think it's it's always an interesting conversation. Always refreshingly real because I think that, you know, there's a lot of, like you said, with the data, I mean, it's it's anyone who talks, there just seems to be all these conflating kind of opinions. And um, it's not really clear where to go for the right information. And uh, Daniel Foch is certainly uh, one of our top resources. So it's great to have him on. Yeah, absolutely. So anything that stuck out in that conversation that you think we should highlight here? Uh, Well, I hope we don't get too much backlash for introducing the idea that homeownership is kind of fading away. Mm, But that was the the most that was the most interesting part to me, how we're kind of how casually really Dan mentioned that we're transitioning to this like renters economy, which um, doesn't you know, it, 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 a bit like if you look at it from just like an economic perspective, that's interesting, um, on its own. Um, and then the fact that he said that that could potentially be a, a positive thing. And I mean, for me, it makes me think of this argument that I think can be made about, um, there being a lot of, I guess, productivity and economic gains in Canada being kind of parked in real estate and how for so long people have kind of seen real estate as this like sure to, you know, sure to grow asset and mm. have done that instead of doing things like investing in businesses or investing in themselves and, yeah. and kind of looking for other outlets where they could potentially. Um, and I, I think that that has maybe hurt the economy. So I think on Dan's point about it potentially being a good thing, that's one area where I think I'd, I'll be watching really closely. What about you? Yeah, that was super interesting. You know, it it is an anomaly in that Canada has this home ownership society for much of the world, you know, not if you compare it to the United States, which we always do, but yeah, if you compare it to Europe, if you compare it to a lot of Asia, it's really unusual that you have such a high percentage of home ownership and there's no reason that it necessarily has to be that way. Um, now I think given how it is to rent in this country in a lot of places, how difficult it is and expensive and dealing with a lot of the hassles that come with that, Mm -hmm. it makes it a less appealing option. You know, when you can be rent evicted at any time, I think it's, it's challenging for people to set up a stable life in those conditions. So I understand why people want to own their own home. Mm -hmm. I get it. I just wonder like the other things that'll come out of that, because I, on that note, I will say, at least we're not like New York where like people are just like, it's it's built into the cycle that you're uprooting your life like every year on the year because you have to find a different place because yeah. there's no control for renters. So yeah. I guess if you if you look to our neighbors to the south, it's a bit more optimistic there. But like I kind of wonder about like the ripple effects of like, okay, like so if we're really gonna be like this like rental economy, like we're gonna maybe see some cool rentals come out of that. Like you kind of see places popping up already that um, I mean, Adam Newman from WeWork is is working hey. on a rental built, you know, years ahead of us having this conversation, yeah. right? So um, it'll be interesting to just to see, I mean, what kind of like what kind of interesting kind of rental concepts come out of this? Is this if this actually is the way forward? And I, I maybe we'll have a developer on at some point to talk about that. Yeah, we should get a rental, a purpose built rental developer on to talk about. It. I'm really curious about what sort of things like people who are going to spend, you know, I'm going to sp- say spend four grand on rent rather than on a mortgage, rather than spending five grand on a mortgage. What you expect. What are you hoping to get out of your, uh, you know, expensive rental well, What would you be experience? hoping to get? I want like a masseuse. A sauna. I want a cold plunge. I want yeah. a personal trainer. I want like a pastry chef that like lives in the building. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, no, I, I, that was that was super interesting. I think also just beyond that, how uh, it does seem to be like a period of um, uncertainty in the housing market and real estate generally. You know, I thought uh, Dan's answer about as a buyer, as an investor, he doesn't need to, he, there's no urgency to go out and allocate his money into real estate right now. And that makes sense to me, you know, with so many policy changes happening, with uncertainty around where interest rates are headed, where the labor market is headed, I can see why it's difficult to make 
decisions right now around, uh, okay, I'm going to invest in this or I'm going to build uh, a multiplex or these sorts of things. We're in a holding pattern for sure. I think like we're all going to be spending the next couple months, maybe a few months, just like at the edge of our seat, like wondering what is the Bank of Canada going to do and what all these factors you say, like, how is everything going to evolve? But yeah, it seems like everything kind of housing related is going to just be like frozen in time for the next four months until we get some clarity on what's happening. Yeah. All right. Well, shall we leave it there for now? I think so. Okay. This has been another episode of Free Lunch by the Peak. If you enjoyed this, you can find all of our past episodes by searching Free Lunch wherever you get your podcasts. And please do leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever else you listen to your podcasts. We really appreciate the feedback. We will see you next week.